0: Christianity is a singing faith. It has always been. Uh, and in this way, it reflects how God, how God made us, how he created human beings, made in his image. I mean, we see him as a singing God throughout the Old Testament and the New. We, are, we were not only made to, to think as, we, as I hope we do this morning, as the word comes to us, we are also made to feel. Now, that makes some of you feel uncomfortable. That's okay. That's good. You were made to, to think and to feel. We are not only made to feel, we were made to express our feelings. My pastor in South Carolina, Brad Baum, helped, helped me think about this as he taught through the Psalms again and again, over and over He would say, quoting John Calvin, the Psalms are an anatomy of the human soul, and they're they're given to us to express our emotions in God-ordained ways. Friends, music is an essential part of life. Singing is an essential part of life. Songs can express emotions, things like sadness, heartbreak, confusion, young love, joy, and Songs sung together can express all kinds of things. You hear people singing at ball games, right? You, you hear them singing together. Uh, we could even try that here. Uh, but we won't because we, we sing congregationally. But you, you can, you, it's, it's almost as if your heart is overflowing with song and when other people start to sing, you want to sing as well. The songs are what we're given in the first few chapters of Luke. If you noticed, uh, Mary expressed her faith through a through a song of thanksgiving. Uh, last week we we looked at that, and this morning, Zechariah is expressing his his faith through a song as well. He's He's singing a song of praise, which is an obedience that uh, God worked in his heart after his unbelief. So we have this, this song, Mary's song, Zechariah's song, and in chapter two, we'll see the angel singing, and, and we see, we'll see Simeon's song, that once he saw the Lord, he, was, he said, now dismiss me, take me home. Seeing the Savior and meditating on God's goodness through his fulfilled promises makes their hearts sing. What makes your heart sing? We all have something we worship. When I say you were made to sing, you were made to worship, you were made to express your emotions. What do, what what makes your heart sing? What do you worship? Tim Keller, in an article called "Understanding Your Heart," gives four categories that most of us most of us fall into in terms of our idolatry. What we worship. Some of us worship comfort. Our our privacy, lack of stress, freedom. That's our comfort. Some of us worship approval, affirmation, love, relationship. Some of us worship control. That manifests itself in self-discipline, certainty, standards. Some of us worship power, success, winning, influence. So what makes your heart sing? You know, one of the ways to look at this is is to say say it like this in the power of idolatry we say life only has meaning or i only have worth if i have power and influence over others in approval idolatry life only has meaning i only have worth if i'm loved and respected by fill in the blank so one of these four categories, most of us fall into one of these four categories or something like it. So what makes your heart sing? When, when, you, when you get this thing, your heart sings. And when you don't get this thing, you get very frustrated and angry and scared. We sit. I can't pretend to know what exactly was going on in Zachariah's heart of unbelief. Remember the story in chapter one five through twenty five The angel appears to him and says you 're going to have a son you 're going to name him john he 's going to be all these things and Zechariah says, "How will I know since my wife i 'm old and my wife is old we're we 're not supposed to have kids. How will I know this? How will I have certainty about this And he was expressing unbelief and became mute and most likely deaf as a punishment for that unbelief. What was he experienced Did he want certainty i 'm not sure exactly, but it was unbelief, and his unbelieving heart, the, the, the very thing he, he expressed in an unbelieving heart became his punishment, just like Israel. He became mute and deaf, just like the gods that he worshipped. So God gave him over to physical deafness and muteness. He was not able to hear, and, and, and he was not able to speak. His, his speech was turned off. Friends, but not even Zechariah's unbelief could keep God from fulfilling his promises. And we see that in the birth of John the Baptist and Zechariah's blessing of praise as, as Bonnie read for us. We're just gonna see this in two categories, the naming ceremony and the prophecy. And what I want you to see Through these is Zachariah's faith is expressed through obedience, it's expressed through a, a, a blessing, but he's he's obeying God and it comes forth out in praise and blessing to God. This is called the Latin term is the Benedictus. This is this is praise be, blessing be to the Lord. So when we read in 57 through 66, Elizabeth gives birth to a son. As you notice, there was joy everywhere, joy to the world, joy uh, you know, in, in Judea, in the hillside of Judea, because this barren woman now gives birth. This is just impossible. How, how does this happen? Well, it's God fulfilling his promises, and the neighbors and the relatives come. You can see in those opening verses, and they celebrate with her, with, because God has shown her great mercy god has God has come, He has visited his this this barren woman, and this this prophet, even this unbelieving prophet, has been kind to them and is giving them a son and the story becomes interesting as they name the child eight days later there 's this this um, ceremony of circumcision as they come to circumcise the child, it, it, apparently that is when they named the child and And if you remember, in chapter one, verse 13, Gabriel told Zechariah, you will name him John. This was a message from God. Gabriel says to Zechariah, his name will be John. You will name him John. But none of those people who were at the circumcision ceremony knew that. Zechariah is over here not able to talk and... Some scholars say that it was it was it was usually the the mother's job to name the child anyway, and it's likely over nine months that Elizabeth and Zechariah probably found a way to communicate, and Elizabeth knew that that you know probably through this this wax tablet uh, thing that that um, Zechariah was writing on that Mary found out that it was supposed to be John, the name was supposed to be John, but none of the other people knew. This would have been very surprising. And so they come to the, the naming part of the ceremony and they ask what the name will be and, and Elizabeth expressing her face says, his name will be John. And the people are like, but nobody in your family is named John. And that was a tradition. Some of you would name them after someone in your family and they're like, no, this, this can't be it. I don't think Elizabeth knows what she's talking about. Let's go talk to John who can't talk. So they go to John and they say, are, are you, Elizabeth says John. Shouldn't it be Zechariah or or someone in your family? And the moment of truth is coming. Does Zechariah, has Zechariah's heart been changed? Does he believe? And he asks for a tablet and he writes down, it will be John. He's expressing his faith, this obedience, and immediately, as soon as he wrote it down, it says, immediately his mouth was open, and what came out of his mouth was blessing and praised for God, who had looked on him and his wife and their sore estate and had been kind to them and fulfilled his prophecy. Now maybe he's holding his newborn son. His name will be John. That's what God said. It's not the mother or the father or someone else who gets to name this child. It is God himself who names him. When, you know, when we name a child, it doesn't have the same significance maybe all the time that it did then. We do still carry our traditions. Uh, my name is Owen Douglas Payne. I am the fourth of, of five with those initials, O-D-P. My great-grandfather was Olin D. My grandfather was Olin Dayton. My dad was Olin Daniel. I'm Owen Douglas. Orion is o- Orion Dayton. So we, we, we do carry some traditions, and maybe you have those traditions in your family, but what would have been like to be named by God himself? God says, your name will be John, because God has been gracious to your family. But friends, this was not only a naming ceremony. This is where Zechariah's faith is expressed publicly. Zechariah now believes God and shows it by obeying him. God said to Gabriel, your name will be John. And against all the pressure and public opinion, he says the name will be John. And even before Zechariah sings his prophecy, his heart is singing of the goodness of God and it's expressed through his obedience. So what makes your heart sing? The naming of his son in obedience to God's command, was a sign that Zechariah's heart had been turned towards God himself. In the, verse 63, they all wondered at this. Immediately, Zechariah is able to speak in verse 64. And the first thing out of his mouth is blessing, a sign that his heart has been changed. So friends, in all of our idolatry, of comfort, of control, of wanting affirmation and all of that, God is asking you, dear friend, will you obey him? Will you let your heart sing in obedience to him because of what he has done in fulfilling his promises? Not, Not obey so that you can be blessed, but sing blessing in obedience because what God has done in his grace to his people. He blesses God and it is in the content of this blessing that we see his his unbelief has been changed to belief. Fear comes upon all the neighbors. Surely God is in this place. And all these things were talked about through all the countryside, the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, what then will this be? The hand of the Lord was with him. And Luke takes up this phrase, hand of the Lord, which was used over 200 times in the Old Testament, and now applies it to John. The hand of the Lord was on John, even from uh, his... Pre-natal, even before his birth, he, his hand of God was on John, and now the hand of God is on John. We see it through the blessing of Zechariah, just like the hand of God was on Joseph. At the end of Genesis, we see the hand of God on Joseph, saving his brothers and Israel alive. Now the hand of God is on John. Luke, the author, picks this up and applies it in Acts 11, 21, and he applies it to the, the church of of, of Antioch and he he says there in that passage in the hand of the Lord was with them the church of Antioch and a great number who believed turned to the Lord as the church of Antioch preached the, the good news of Jesus' resurrection Christ's resurrection the hand of the Lord was on them and God was blessing them This belief expressed through obedience and the loosing of Zechariah's tongue were amazing acts of God's goodness. But in another sense, they were were merely attending circumstances to introducing Zechariah's psalm of blessing. His heart was singing and it came out in the Benedictus. The result of Zechariah's changed heart from unbelief to belief is a song of praise. He does not sing Praise of his son John, he sings praise to God who remembers his people and visits them with salvation. That was the naming ceremony, and, and now the prophecy. So I can only cover these these verses fifty-seven through or uh, sixty-seven through eighty in in cursory fashion. Uh, but th- these this text, this song, this psalm that that. Zechariah sang forth the content of these verses is packed with prophetic significance and Old Testament connection. Nearly every word is a quote out of the Old Testament or an allusion to some Old Testament passage. And we notice right away that he he blesses the Lord God of Israel. Here's the header. And then he gives reasons why in verse 68. For he has visited, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And if you skip down to verse 78, he says all of this, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. These, these two words at the front and the back of this prophecy sort of encapsulate or an inclusio of, 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 of what was most important. It is God is visiting his people, coming to his people, that's the, the advent. God is, is coming. This is, idea was usually expressed in the Old Testament showing that God was coming to, to visit his people in need of help. He's coming to help them. He's, the, the word visit is like the word oversee. It's, it's actually word, one of the words where we get bishop from. He is overseeing his people. It, it sometimes means he's coming to, to, to judge But most of the time, he is visiting his people to help them. God had promised and planned to come to his people to relieve them of their distress and conquer their enemies. Did you you see that? He visited and redeemed his people, that's to buy back. And he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of Israel, house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. God is coming to, to deliver out of distress and to conquer their enemies. And we should not be confused about this. The, the horn of salvation is like a, a metaphorical, uh, it's, it doesn't mean a trumpet, It's uh, it's 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 a literary device that's pointing to like an animal's horn, like an oxen or a rhinoceros. The the power is sort of seen in the horn, and no one wants to get gored by the horn, right? Like there's power in that horn. The bullfighters are trying to avoid those horns. That was it was a literary way of of saying of talking about power, and God has raised up a horn of salvation. This is this is in reference to the the kingly office of of the Messiah. And he's coming to to rescue, to redeem, and to conquer enemies. We, we shouldn't be confused that some of the apostles, uh, it, even some of the people in the first century and the Jews who who thought that he was he was he was not he was not coming to get rid of a political enemy in his first coming or his first advent. He was he was coming to deal with our, our spiritual and more dangerous enemy, sin and death. 1 Corinthians, Paul takes this up in 1 Corinthians. Our greatest enemy is death. And he tells us that he must reign, that is Jesus, who was resurrected from the dead, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And why God will deal with all his enemies and our enemies in judgment He will deal with our greatest enemy, sin and death. He'll put it under his feet in the cross, and in his second coming, it will finally be destroyed. This is his kingly office. He is coming. He's taking care of your biggest problem, death. Who here isn't afraid of death? Jesus has conquered it. He rose from the dead. But first, he comes as an infant, lowly and humble, but he is not going to stay that way. He is the horn of salvation from, his house, from the house of his servant, David. Jesus was born into a kingly line, and God promised this way back in 2 Samuel 7, when David wanted to build God a house. David said, I'm going to build you a house. But God said, no, I am going to build you a house. And that's a, it was a play on words to say, "No, I'm going to build you a kingly line that will last forever. And friends, what we need to notice about this, this is not a prophecy about John. We may be tended to think that, that he was prophesying about his son. But no, this isn't a prophecy about John. We, we know that because, because John was from Zechariah who was a, a, a priest from the line of Levi. But this one that's gonna bring salvation is from the line of David, from, from the line of Judah. The Messiah was to come from the line of, uh, of Judah and he was going to bring healing in his wings. This was about someone from David's line, not John. He would come, this one, this Messiah bringing redemption. This was anticipated through the line of David. As D.A. Carson says, all these, these streams from the Old Testament, like this prophecy to David, is running to this bigger stream of Messiah who is called Christ. God's promises David to bring redemption through his line will be this baby that will be born in a manger. This Messiah was also uh, seen as a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, not only to be delivered from our enemies, but to replace who we, who we serve, that, that we might serve him without fear, with, with holiness and righteousness all our days, this text says. This is what he is going to do. He is not only coming from the line of David, he is, uh, he is that one who is the promised one that gives, that it, it is the sign that God is being merciful to the fathers, that is Abraham and, and, and Isaac and, and, and Jacob, God made a covenant with them. You can see that beginning in Genesis chapter 12. And God made a pro- covenant with them. And now, thousands of years later, that is coming to fulfillment. And God says He's not slow in keeping His promises. And here it is, it's, it's sort of the high point of the whole Bible. Here comes, here comes that, that one, the serpent crusher, the one that's going to put all his enemies under his feet. Here he comes as a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, who was before David. To remember his holy covenant, verse 72. Verse 73 the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we be delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Verse 75 in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. He is coming with healing in his wings. This is the one who makes our hearts sing. This fulfillment of the covenant to Abraham re- reminds us that. Even as he promised a son to Abraham and they had to wait 20 plus years to see that fulfilled, the full promise to Abraham took thousands of years to come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. God is not slow to keep his promises as some of us count slowness. And maybe your heart is heavy and not able to sing this morning or is occupied and distracted with other things because maybe you, got, you thought God forgot. You, you, you thought, um, you, you, maybe be tempted, you maybe have been tempted to think that, that God is not gonna keep his promise to you in some way. God always keeps his promises and Jesus is the fulfillment of that. The Messiah is the fulfillment of that. The King who sits on the throne now was was going to be God. God's the one who shows mercy by remembering His covenant. And Zechariah prophesies now. All of these streams are coming in, into the great river, who is Jesus Christ, the, the stream that promised, the stream of David, that promised the Messiah, the stream of Abraham, that promised the covenant would be fulfilled. And now we see them all flowing into this one river that's going to the ocean of God's love. And now we see that God, Zechariah prophesies about his son John, that he will be the forerunner, the prophet of, this, of the Most High. He says, "And you. That is different than the Messiah. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins, because of the tender mercies of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. That is to say, the Messiah will be God, and John will be preparing the way by preaching about Him. His message, John's message, Zechariah prophesies, will be about the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercies of God. That, that word is the old translations translated it "bowels of mercies." That's weird to us right but it, it gets at the sense that when you feel something deeply inside it, it's in your gut you feel it butterflies in your stomach that kind of a feeling it's it's out of god's tender mercies that he's sending jesus and he's sending the preparer he's sending the one who prepares the way by telling forth john gets his identity by pointing to jesus by pointing to the Messiah, by by pointing out the way of forgiveness of sins. This is the result is that people who are in darkness will have a light of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ shine on them. That light is better and brighter than any Clark Griswold light show. It's more glorious than than any light show you'll see in Corvallis. And it makes Zechariah's heart sink with belief, and it'll make John point the way to the Messiah. He will say, I'm not the Christ, and he will point to Jesus and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He must increase, I must decrease. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. It is, he is the one. The day spring from a high that will that will bring light into the darkness and overcome the shadow of death. And literally, in the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because you are with us. You will guide our feet into the way of peace. And John's heart will sing when he's doing what he's created to do, what he was prophesied to do: point the way to Jesus. Pointing to Jesus. So this is, this prophecy is not fully and finally about John. The prophecy about John is like, look, John, here's your job. You point to Jesus. You point to his way. So during this Christmas season, that in some ways in the commercialism can be distracted, to created to distract us from the, the true meaning of Christmas, I, I don't just mean that you know the true meaning of Christmas is giving, and the true meaning of Christmas is having family around you. All those things are good, and it would be good if we thought that way more. But I mean the true meaning of Christmas—the promised King and the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham has come, born in the stable two thousand years ago, and He came not to serve, but to not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many pointing to him was not merely, merely John's obligation it was his joy it was what he was made for it was what, it was what made his heart sing it's what you were made for it's what you make will make your heart sing when you're fully satisfied in god when you're fully satisfied in jesus as as the only one who can fill up what is lacking inside of you, not control, not comfort, not approval, none of those things, when you are fully satisfied in him, you will be pointing to him. And I don't mean, I, don't, I do not mean at all to guilt you into evangelism. We do that too much as evangelical Christians I think we should be evangelizing, but I don't think we will be evangelizing until our heart is singing for the glory of God who has satisfied us with his love. Friend, in fact, Matthew 11 tells us that of those born among women, there was no one greater than John the Baptist. Not Abraham, not David, not Elijah. Can you imagine That being said, you'd have been like, greater than Abraham, seriously? Not greater than David? Uh, The question we gotta ask is, how, how was he greater than these people? Because it goes on to say that the least in the kingdom is greater than John. So the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist, greater than David, greater than Abraham, greater than Elijah. So how was John greater than these people? And John Chapter 11. Because John was greater than these people, in this sense, he was able to point to Jesus in person and say, "He's the Christ. He's the one that can take away your sins. He's the one that will bring forgiveness of sins to you through His death and resurrection, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world." Now how are we greater than John? Uh, friends, we're not greater than John in, in, in every way conceivable. We are greater than John in this way. The least of the kingdom is greater than John. How? Because we can point to the resurrected Christ and say he's the Christ. We have this more sure word here than even seeing his transfiguration or resurrection. This is a sure word for us, friends. Even even more sure than an eyewitness testimony. That's what Peter says about this word. You are the least in the kingdom. If you have faith to believe this, if you have trust to believe this and point other people to it, you are greater than even John the Baptist. So what is it right now that tempts you to worship something besides Jesus? What is it that tempts you to make Christmas about something besides Jesus? Is it power, control, comfort, approval, or something else? Friends, my prayer is that all of us, where all of us, including me, are tempted to worship something else, and that's what gets our eyes onto ourselves and not pointing to Jesus. My prayer is that God would change our hearts and our affections, that we would be consumed with Jesus this Christmas, not out of guilt, but because we have seen Jesus for who he really is, and we just point away from ourselves to him and say, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, the king of kings, the prince of peace, the government will be on his shoulders. Look to him. Enjoy Christmas. Enjoy the presents. Enjoy your family. And enjoy them in Jesus Christ, who is your savior, who is the only one who can really make your heart sing. Let's pray. God,